Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror. We're podcasting from the horror and summary halls of academia. This is Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And yes, welcome to summer school. You can tell it is summer school because Andrea and I have switched from drinking wine to drinking beer, and it is delicious. We're drinking MGD today, which might be a domestic where you're from, but from where we're sitting, it's a delicious summery import, and we're enjoying it immensely. And speaking of delicious summery imports, today we wanted to talk about two of what we think are the most quintessential summer horror movies. And those would be 1975's Steven Spielberg classic blockbuster inventing film, Jaws. And Joe Dante's, I think, equally amazing 1978 film, Piranha. That's right. We're taking the faculty of horror to the beach. No, that's scary for us because we're both quite pale. You know, Andrea tends to hiss when the sun comes out and I burn easily. So we're both being very vulnerable in this episode and we hope that you appreciate that. One of the most important contemporary films for a lot of reasons, I would say, is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. And that goes into a lot of the socio-history of this film, which not only has to do with the way it combines genres and also the way it is a terrifying and very unnerving film in some ways, but in the way that it created the blockbuster film. This had never really been seen. And, you know, almost 40 years later, we are in a summer right now where we are seeing a new quote-unquote blockbuster open every weekend. And it's become such that these blockbuster seasons now start in April and go through Labor Day weekend. So we are in the age of the blockbuster, all thanks to this movie. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish. 
but I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out in the water now? This shark swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20 footer. 25. Three tons of them. He's coming straight for us. Don't scoot up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! Watch the tail. Give him room. I can't. He's trying to run. Oh! Run quick. I can't hold it. Hurry! None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. That's right. And insofar as Jaws isn't really a horror movie, per se, it definitely has some scary elements. I almost want to call it horror light. It has a lot of the same themes as we're going to talk about, especially as regards Piranha. But Jaws basically, it changed the industry. It revitalized Hollywood. It invented the summer blockbuster. It had a huge promotion budget. And the way it was marketed is kind of horror-esque. It's kind of a throwback to the exploitation films. Jaws was marketed on its concept of this scary monster, this one iconic villain, the score that permeates it. There were a lot of factors that made this movie a hit. And not to belittle it, it's an excellent film. You know, it rightfully launched Steven Spielberg to where he is today. But at the same time, I do feel like it's worth mention that the marketing campaign has a lot to do with its success. It was definitely very dependent on its shock and awe quality, the terror, the titillation of it. And what it seems like was that the film company was really banking on it becoming an event film. Now, that's helped by not only having shocking imagery and shocking elements to it, which would be a big great white shark in the middle of your film, but also a solid script and really great warm performances by, I think, the whole cast, which really helped elevate it from B-movie material to something that did change the whole industry. Now, for anyone that doesn't know, Jaws is the story of a small town called Amity. And this town has a sheriff named Brody, who's played by Roy Schneider. He's kind of a nice, regular guy. He's just doing the best job he can. And all of a sudden, a girl turns up dead. Now, this is the scene we see at the beginning where a girl swims out and is brutally attacked by a great white shark. A young oceanographer, Matt Hooper, comes to this town to help out. Brody tries to shut down the beach on the 4th of July weekend, but this falls on deaf ears to the town's mayor, who insists that it stays open because as a small beach town, Amity depends on the tourist trade and that people will come and swim and spend money there. This is all well and good until a young boy named Alex is brutally attacked in front of a crowd of people and dies. The town goes into panic mode and vigilantes start showing up, including 
a very haggard man named Quint shows up and says that he will catch the beast for a mere $10,000. Now, none of the attempts to catch this Jaws creature really work until Quint, Hooper, and Brody all team up to fight this shark together. Once they go out to sea, this trio is at odds, but through basic human decency that permeates every Steven Spielberg film, they find commonality and they find friendship. This ends in a bloody battle where Matt Hooper goes into the sea in a cage to try to observe the shark and eventually waits by the sidelines in shock. Jaws attacks this boat, the orca that they are on, basically cutting Quint in half, and it is the quiet man Brody who successfully stops the shark by putting a gas tank in its mouth and exploding it. Brody and Hooper are the only two left alive, and they paddle to shore back to Brody's family and the calm, quiet life, and hopefully happy 4th of July that they do have. The analogies to Moby Dick are pretty obvious. Eyes now you might win. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Quint is very analogous to Ahab. He's got this obsessive desire to destroy this beast, and it's that obsessive desire that ultimately consumes him. But in Moby Dick, the whale goes free, and nature kind of wins, which is not so with Jaws. It's the other men who persevere, the ones who stepped out of their element and confronted their fears, really, because Brody was actually afraid of water, wasn't he? We know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? Some bad hat, Harry. He was afraid of the water, and then Hooper is built as really privileged, educated. He raises Quint's ire right from the beginning for being inexperienced, whereas, you know, Quint is very salty. He's had a couple of rounds with nature before that left him horribly scarred, again, similar to Ahab. So we've got this working-class tough pitted against this educated technological kind of guy and then we've got Brody in the middle who himself he's uh he's a city slicker he comes from the city he's got a family he's got his town's best interests at heart but he is also the one who must mediate between the mayor and the people and it's so heartbreaking that he's the one who gets slapped in the face of the mother of the deceased child when he's really the one who wanted to shut down the beach from the very beginning you knew it was dangerous but you let people go swimming anyway One of the strengths, I think, of Jaws is that while Quint and Hooper are played at odds, they're actually very similar. They are mirror images of each other, and I think this becomes very apparent in what I would say is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is when they're all on the boat and they have that quiet night before everything goes to hell, and Hooper and Quint start trading scar stories and laughing about it and getting drunk and really, really bonding. And Brody's there, and Brody's a part of it, but he's very much on the outs. He's not quite at that level. And Brody, as the audience conduit in this film, I mean, the majority of the audience has not fought things at sea or, you know, gone to a crazy war or studied oceanography, so he is our audience conduit. And the fact that he is the one who keeps the level head and is able to confront the beast at the end and survive is hugely important and a real triumph to this kind of humanistic side of the blockbuster that I think has really permeated and is still there to this day. Now, for myself, having been born in the 80s, I thought it was really interesting that Jaws existed to me 
not as a movie, but as a, a cultural event. I remember going to Disneyland and Universal Studios, and I knew what Jaws was far before I had ever seen it. I also knew that it scared the shit out of people, and that a lot of, lot, a lot of people would not go anywhere near the water. It's kind of ironic that Jaws actually did have an impact on tourism to beachy resort towns because people were scared to shit of shark attacks. One of the most overriding things I found that when I was doing my research for this episode, when I was looking at the importance of animals in history or in storytelling, they're often associated with the will of God or whatever overpowering deity you choose to believe in. So it's kind of important to consider when we talk about this movie and in the following movies and any movies like birds or anything like that, that there's this underlying sense of these animals are sent to right a wrong. In this case, it's really interesting because there's a writer who I really admire, and his name is Peter Biskind, and he wrote, if you're interested in this topic, a really great book called Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, which is about the new Hollywood that emerged in the 70s, and Jaws is obviously a huge part of this. Now, he really posited in an article he wrote about Jaws that Jaws was part of a movement of films that weren't politically motivated. Coming out of the Cold War, a few years out of that, Jaws, the shark, didn't necessarily represent a political force. And he cites movies like The Towering Inferno, which, you know, natural disaster, disaster movie, as well as The Exorcist, which is a supernatural movie. And that's very clearly pure good versus pure evil. With Jaws, what's interesting is I don't disagree with that, but it's hard to disassociate Jaws having a political impact because Quint, who is such a fascinating character, mentions being a part of the Indianapolis incident. And Jaws, based on the timeline of this movie, shows up on June 30th. And June 30th, 1945, was when the atomic bombs were dropped in Japan during World War II, which helped end the war. Now, this is a very politically motivated, very politically complicated situation. And it's interesting to think that a kind of natural disaster, a creature like Jaws the shark, was coming for this small, quaint American town on their most sacred of holidays, July 4th, to wreak vengeance and to destabilize that society in just a fraction of the way that Japanese society was destabilized. Yeah, it's totally true. And in the post-war context, I almost feel like Jaws is positing this post-war lifestyle where people had money, but they were still kind of rebuilding and revitalizing their communities. And for a town like Amity, there's kind of an obvious allegory between the shark, who is in Amity because there is plentiful food, and Amity, which is only able to exist because there is plentiful tourism. You know, they both have their own parasitic qualities. In addition to that... In the 70s post-war context, there was no real villain to other, and so it turned to nature. There wasn't a racialized other, there was only this cultural other that, to me, was very poignant because nature was here first, wasn't it? These Americans with their summer homes want to go swim in the beach and kind of enjoy all nature has to offer. Then this natural predator comes upon them and they have to band together as humanity and not as a people or a race, but as a species. And I thought that was really interesting. When I think of anything, I don't know if you agree with me, but it's that Jaws is 
less a critical observation of World War II or Vietnam or the Cold War than it is a critical look at the Americanness and the American mindset and the American decision-making process. Because while Jaws is the shark, I mean, is evil and killing people, the shark is not what's allowing people to be killed. Brody is constantly saying, shut the beaches down. We don't know what's out there. We don't know if we caught the right shark. You know, all of these things. And it is the town mayor who insists on keeping it open to keep the town afloat. Now, while we understand intellectually those motivations of needing to provide jobs and keep everything stable, there is a real underlying sense of sinister capitalism at play. And I thought that was a really interesting criticism of that movement, because I think, as Andrea was just saying, there is this fetishized quaintness to the whole town. It's very sweet. It's very cute. And when you interact with, you know, your protagonists, who are Brody and Hooper and Quint, there is a nice realness to them. There's a kind of saltiness to all of them in their own ways, which makes it feel more real. And you, I think, inherently trust them more. I totally agree with everything you just said. We were talking about the film before we started recording, and I think we both agreed that we don't want to give this film too much critical inquiry because I think at its heart it is very much a blockbuster. I think the best we could pull out of it is that it takes a context where Americans feel very safe and comfortable and it's a symbol of affluence to be able to go to a beach town and enjoy the summer with your family, and this just turns all of that on its head. That said, in addition to the gore and in stark contrast to the gore, it does have a very jaunty, upbeat tone. And one thing I noticed, which stands in great contrast to the film we're going to talk about next, is the score. You know, we've got the really iconic, sinister, Jaws-approaching music. But then you also have this really upbeat adventure music when they're struggling on the boat. It really sits in contrast to some of the profoundly gory and bloody stuff that we see in this film. Yeah, I don't think Spielberg ever goes full hog with the horror element. He's playing both sides of the fence, which I would never fault him for, because otherwise, how would you get a movie like this that has enough genre elements to appeal to fans, but also can appeal to a mass audience and still be inherently watchable? So I think he's a very savvy filmmaker. And you got to remember, he was 27 when he made this. He's younger than both of us. We just have a podcast. It so happens that I have the 20th anniversary edition of Jaws for some reason or another. I'm not especially fond of this film. The very first page of this little commemorative photo journal that came with the anniversary edition says, When I first hear the word Jaws, I just think of a period of my life when I was much younger than I am right now. And I think that because I was younger, I was more courageous or I was more stupid. I'm not sure which. So when I think of Jaws, I think about courage and stupidity. And I think of both those things existing underwater. So he almost readily admits, I'm not going to say that this film is a fluke. It's an excellent film, but it exists kind of in a league of its own. I hope, Andrea, when you think of courage and stupidity, you think of me. It's just swimming with bow-legged women. 
No, I think that's an excellent point, or rather an excellent point that you supported of mine. Well, I think that goes into Spielberg's real appreciation of the quote-unquote man-boy. And this comes up time and again in different films of his and in different ways. And also his love of the child character like you have with Elliot in E.T. There's a real love of the lack of understanding in certain characters the fact that they haven't bought into a society favored way of living they are still questioning things they are still figuring things out and therefore they have more perception to deal with trauma or events when they happen now there's a theorist called Irving Goffman and he delineated two things between social activity and natural activity. Now, social activity, he said, was guided doings. And the natural world, he said, is undirected, unoriented, unanimated, and unguided. This is, I think, really important because you have a man like Quint, who is very hypermasculine and very, as Andrew was saying, he's super, super Ahab-like from Moby Dick. And then you have these two new men, a new version of masculinity. You have Hooper, who is very educated, kind of scrawny and cute, and, you know, really knows something and brings something to the table. And then you have Brody, who doesn't have a particularly strong knowledge of anything that is going on. He doesn't have the grit that Quint has. He doesn't have the ocean knowledge that Hooper has, but he has heart. And that's what he brings to the table. And he brings sensitivity and thoughtfulness and a way of seeing the world that actually leads him to be the hero of the picture. That's right. And in that way, I feel like it has a very coming of age, loss of innocence aspect to it is, you know, these three men out in the wild and the salty old one with tons of experience. Well, he's done. You know, he he was defeated by the obsession that consumed him. Then for Hooper, he what he lacked was experience. And now he's got it in spades. And for Brody, he was actually afraid of the water. He gets to come out as the hero who saved his whole town and his family. So these elements have really become Spielbergian canon. So we won't go into them much here. Hopefully um, when Brody got back to the shore, he and his wife got drunk and fooled around. Want to get drunk and fool around? Oh, yeah. So the second film that we're going to talk about is, interestingly, a film that Spielberg himself declared the best of the Jaws ripoffs. Because as with any colossal blockbuster success of a film, there are ripoffs. Everybody was making creature features, but not just creature features, natural creature features. Stuff that's going down at the beach. And that film is Joe Dante's Piranha from 1978. Who could have imagined they were there? Who could have predicted they would attack? And now, who would survive? Your Honor, they're here. Oh, you Stay back. Your Honor, they're hungry. What's the matter with you? Your Honor, they're unstoppable. Stop that! Keep your hand out of the water. What's wrong with the water? The water is filled with carnivorous fish. Irana. They call them the devil fish. Because wherever they go, hell waits below. They breed like flies. There'll be no way to stop them. Suddenly, no one is safe. And everyone must be warned. 
the water is now a human death trap. Two people have been killed up there, and more have been killed all along the river. You've got to believe it. These are the man-eaters who go beyond the bite of all other jaws. Sharks come alone. Piranha come in thousands. Crazed by the scent of blood, they live by the taste of flesh. With razor teeth, they can strip a man to the bone in a frozen instant of terror. Piranha. They're here. They're hungry. They'll eat you alive. Who can stop them? This film starts out similarly to Jaws in that there is a young couple who are camping and exploring and they happen upon this compound where, hey, sweet, there's a pool. It's pitch black, but what the fuck? Let's go swimming. And so they do and they're both consumed. Enter Maggie, who is very much a city slicker of a young woman, and she's a private investigator who has been hired to hunt down these teenagers. So she sets off into the country, and she encounters the cabin of a certain Paul Grogan. Now, Paul Grogan is living on his own in a cabin purely to drink and to escape his life in the city. He reveals to Maggie that he once had a wife, he once had a normal life, and when that all went to shit, he withdrew to be all on his own. He has a daughter who is attending summer camp on the same lake. So she manages to rope him into helping her. I'm not really sure how that happens, but these two become a pair. They find the compound, and they encounter Dr. Hoke. Now, Dr. Hoke was involved in military experimentation on a certain breed of piranha, breeding them to be horrible predators for military purposes. And after the war, the project got shut down, but Hoke kept up his research, and he kept his pet piranhas in this compound, which those unfortunate teenagers happened upon. So he reluctantly agrees to help them, and they realize that these fish have been released into the water, and once again, just like Jaws, they must contend with local politics to keep the camps and the beachfront properties open, in spite of the fact that there are horrible carnivorous piranha in the water. The resistance is coming from Colonel Waxman and Dr. Mengers, who is a really interesting, fun little Barbara Steele cameo, which she plays off incredibly. Now, she's very canny. She's very savvy. She knows what these piranhas can do, whereas Colonel Waxman quarantines Maggie and Grogan because they know the truth, and it's up to them to break out and solve the problem all on their own. Now, unlike Jaws, Piranha has an extremely bleak ending. They decide that the best way to kill the Piranha would be to unleash toxic waste into the water. It's kind of hilarious. I'm sure we're going to get into it because it's a pretty major theme that it's a man-made monster with a man-made poisonous solution. But the attempt actually renders Grogan catatonic. He got a bit too munched by the piranhas and a bit too much of the industrial waste, and he appears catatonic toward the end. But Maggie and the daughter survive. However, at the very end, you've got this clip of Dr. Mengers looking at the camera and saying, oh, everything's fine, but we hear the sound of the piranha that we've heard all the way through, and we know it's not the case. There's nothing left to fear. Now, I had this thought while I was watching both these films, and it was like, 
Would I be more scared of one big great white shark or a school of tiny flesh-eating piranhas? And I got to say, I'd I'd much more terrified of a school of flesh-eating piranhas. Because I feel like Jaws you would see coming. And if, if I couldn't escape, then I would have time to, like, make peace and be like, okay... I've lived my life, but with piranhas, they would come out of nowhere and just, like, hack at me, and it just would be so much more painful. We're going to get into the cultural and sociological aspects of these films, but a school of fish represent the power in the many, whereas the great white shark is the one big juggernaut, you know? So I I feel like they tap into distinct and very visceral fears that we have. Now, as Andrea alluded to earlier already in this episode, Piranha is the great Jaws ripoff, but it also, I think, stands as a film on its own because, for me, Joe Dante, I think, is an incredible filmmaker and has really created some of the most iconic images, especially in 80s films, that we still enjoy today. Now, I think he has a great understanding of film because he was able to take a lot of elements that worked in Jaws parlay them through a different avenue or a different school if you will and still make a really entertaining I would say a much more satirical take on Jaws but something that's just as gruesome and I think when you think about it it's just as upsetting like if you really give yourself over to yourself being in water and and attacked by something it's just as upsetting and just as traumatizing and especially if you know a little bit about the budget they were working with and the special effects limitations they have I think the editing and the music and the model work they did do was so incredible and it really like I was creeped out I was so unsettled watching those scenes It's also unsettling because it depicts the situation as a very humanity-made mess. It was a military endeavor gone wrong that was let out by accident. Like, everything is humanity's fault. And yet it falls to these two humanity rejects. Like, not to slag Maggie, she's she's got her charms, as she exposes at one point in the film. Look! Up in the sky! But Paul Grogan is such an unlikely hero, having withdrawn from society, and then in the way that they decide to deal with it, everything is humanity dealing with humanity's mess with humanity's more mess. Where are we going? The Lake Barrows, where the outlet for the refinery was. It'll be bunched tight when they come through there. What then? If it isn't capped off, there might be enough waste left in the smelling tanks. It'll kill the fish? It'll kill anything. We'll pollute the bastards to death. No, I think that's absolutely correct. And and I think with Jaws, you could read in those elements, but as you probably just heard, we were kind of reaching for them. And that's a really in-depth analysis on Jaws to get to those points that maybe Hiroshima kind of caused Jaws, and maybe this is Jaws wreaking vengeance. We're pulling at that, but there's something about Piranha that is so clear-cut And I love that they took that route of, so it is humanity's fault for creating them. It is also humanity's fault for unleashing them. And it is humanity's continued mistakes of the waste plant that will kill these piranhas, fingers crossed, hopefully. But at the end, we are still left with that notion of unknowing and that maybe like Icarus, we flew too close to the sun. We wanted those piranhas to kill too badly. What was present in Piranha that was really missing in Jaws that really sets it apart as a horror film. That bleakness, 
it cuts deep, strangely enough. We talk about nature a lot in this podcast, and I feel like in Piranha, nature is posited as unnatural for humans. We've got Maggie, she's a city slicker. We've got Grogan, he's just there to be alone. They are not nature-loving people. They are not like Quint, and they are not like Hooper either. They don't want to be there. It is not their natural habitat. It's not their thing. It, it was a very humanity versus nature thing, whereas Jaws kind of had this coming of age, and we're discovering the communal nature of humanity, men from different walks of life coming together and finding commonalities. It's that kind of really latent optimism that really sets the films apart in my eyes. I totally agree with that. And what I think is interesting that at the heart of both of these films, what is at stake is a small town survival. And that in Jaws, you have the 4th of July celebrations to contend with and needing to keep that open and the start of the summer season. And Piranha happens during the summer. Seems to be like at the beginning of summer. That's when it's important and there's a camp going on and all of this stuff that happens down this river. So there's a real importance about the economics and that that is actually proved to be the most detrimental thing that we are faced with. So the fact that in the town or the riverside where Piranha takes place, you have all these disenfranchised characters actually coming together for the sake of saving certain things. And those priorities are the children and the town and the economics of that town. And it's actually very similar that you have that kind of theme in Jaws. When the young woman dies at the beginning, no one really cares. Like Brody and Hooper care, but no one else really seems to give a shit. And when the young boy Alex dies, that's when everyone takes notice. And that's when everyone starts freaking out. Because not only does that begin to affect the reputation of the town, but it also begins to affect the next generation. And Jaws and Piranha both have great scenes where children are in peril. And for me, in Jaws, it's the moment when Brody's son is at risk. And that's a really tense, really terrifying scene because, you know, you have Brody and his wife giving great performances and definitely terrified for their child and trying to save him. And in Piranha, you have this camp marathon lake swimming thing going on. I was not a swimmer, so I don't understand it. And that seemed to really propel and really move that plot forward in a really big way. That's when shit got real. It is, yeah. And Piranha also included this kind of subplot of this camp where there was a group of camp counselors who are female and they're always undermining the big male head honcho who's in charge and they don't respect his authority at all. Now, Grogan's daughter is afraid of water, but this head camp director is always after her to get in the water and it takes guts. It takes guts. Grogan. Guts. They're always kind of undermining his authority, and he's always after Grogan's daughter to have some guts and have some guts, which is, of course, hilarious because we're watching a horror movie and we're getting ready for the guts. But we lose a certain camp counselor who had such a level head, and when she gets pulled under, it is really, for lack of a better term, gutting. You could say that Grogan's daughter is a bit like a female Brody, not as sexy as Roy Schneider. You're going to need a bigger boat. Both films spawned a whole legion of sequels, understandably, in addition to, you know, rip-offs and imitations and whatnot. Now, we didn't put Piranha 3D in our curriculum for today, but we've both seen it, so we have some strong feelings about it. We feel like it's worth mentioning.
You see that gap right there? Yeah. Quake opened that up. Now it's a connecting passage. Descending fissure. Oh my god. It's at least 200 feet, Novak. for weeks. I want to know what the hell this thing is doing in my lake. Is that a piranha? This particular piranha vanished two million years ago. I'm thinking about closing the lake. There's us and there's 20,000 kids. You do the math. So, Alex, what did you think of Piranha 3D? Well, Andrea, I think that I saw it when it came out in theaters and I was severely hungover after my birthday party. And I went to see it with my best friend because we thought it'd be super fun and really entertaining and totally mindless. And we both walked out of there angry as hell. It was such a mean-spirited, nasty, and not-in-a-good-way movie. It was so shitty. It made me really upset, and I knew that it was Alexander Aja who directed it, and I had a certain amount of respect, and I still do, for High Tension, and I was just like, I cannot believe the same filmmaker that made that took part in this. I have a fairly similar review, only I saw it very recently, and I thought I had heard mixed reviews. I I can't name my sources now, but I feel like... People said that it was very good gore and that it was, you know, it was Alexandre Aja making a summer film and he had some fun with it and he played with it. And certainly there are moments of absolute gore glory in it. But sadly, it comes after so much horrible patronizing characters. And you know what? I get it. I get you're trying to posit Spring Break as the unbearable event that it is with absolutely unbearable people. But it almost did that too well, and I was uninvested in the character. I didn't even want to see them killed. I wanted to erase having ever seen them at all, and I just couldn't get past it. So by the time it kicked into high gear, which is toward the end, I mean, I'm almost wondering if I should be telling you people just to watch the second half and enjoy it without any story, because the gore is actually excellent. No, absolutely. The gore is fantastic, and it goes on for a while. So if you are interested, check it out after the hour-long point. But I think it's a very clear example of what Piranha does is, you know, you can say it's a B movie and it takes a lot of the tropes that Spielberg tried to introduce and did introduce in Jaws, but it doesn't try to elevate them. It's just kind of a fun, funky little movie. 
But the performances are good enough and the characters are just characterized just enough that I gave a damn about them. And even if I didn't love them, I wanted them to be okay. In Piranha 3D, I actively wanted people to die, but just quicker. And it was hard. It's hard to watch a film where there was casting that I knew people in it going back and I watched a little bit of it in prep for this episode. Seeing people I really liked be a part of it actually made me upset. Like Adam Scott, who I really like, and for any other podcast fans out there, Paul Shear, who's one of the hosts of How Did This Get Made, which hopefully you all know because it's an amazing and very popular podcast, is the guy on the boat with Jerry O'Connell with the sunscreen. And he's like the funniest, nicest guy on his podcast. And I just wanted to punch him in the face the whole time. And I know that was the point, but I still fucking want to do it. I was sad to see Elizabeth Shue brought down to that level. Even though she had a strong female character, it was just the movie was too bad and it sank her with it. And the same with Christopher Lloyd. The, the only reason I'm bringing it up, I guess, is not only to bash it, which I had a lot of fun doing on Twitter last week, and those of you who follow me will remember my vitriol, but I also thought it was worth mentioning that one of the thematic changes made in the remake is that Tourism is obviously still a big part of it, but because the event goes down so fast, it doesn't have the temporality of these other films that kind of take place over a couple of days where the mayor is consulted to react. Basically, we've got this disaster happening at a party. The police are really ineffective and the spring break partiers are just not listening to the police because they're there to party. So insofar as the original Jaws and Piranha were kind of a humanity against nature instrument, I almost felt like this was more of a humanity against humanity thing. And uh, as interesting as that sounds, it, uh, it didn't work. I absolutely agree. One of the nicest things, and obviously, you know, we like to talk about feminism a lot in this podcast, and... In Jaws, you know, the only main female character is really Brody's wife. And, you know, she's largely ineffectual. She's more of a supportive character. But I really loved the relationship that she and Brody had. It really did seem like a partnership. There seemed to be real affection there and a nice chemistry. And it was really sweet. And while everything is going down on the boat during the climax of Jaws, I wanted Brody to get back to her. I wanted him just to find a way and to go. And the fact that Matt was able to hang along, all the better. It's kind of the same thing in the original Piranha movie. I liked Paul enough and I liked his daughter enough that I wanted them to be reunited. So there is that bittersweet thing of you don't know if he's okay at the end, but you know his daughter is going to be okay. And there was just, I think in Piranha 3D and all of the Jaws sequels, which just got progressively weirder, they frankly robbed Michael Caine of accepting an Oscar. Michael Caine speaks to his nose about that. They just get weirder and more disassociated with that feeling of when trauma happens and when the stakes get higher and higher, you want to be able to return to loved ones. And, and that becomes a very humanistic thing in the midst of a very fantastical story. Yeah, and I guess in that respect, you just made me think of the fact that Brody was the only family man, and he didn't have the seafaring experience, and he didn't have the education. We talk a lot about how women have the choice whether or not to stay at home and become housewives, whether to adopt that as their identity as opposed to pursuing a career for more individualistic motives. And so, yeah, I almost feel like... That's one of the distinctions between Brody and the other two men is he decided to settle down and have a nice quiet life in his 
seaside town and raise his family, whereas the others kind of went off doing their own thing. And I actually appreciate that kind of in both these movies, that idea of family and commitment and and work towards that family unit is really appreciated. Quint and Hooper might seem kind of cool, but they're also kind of empty on a certain level. They don't have anyone waiting for them at home. There's no real pull for them. It's that blind Ahab-like careening towards this monster and it's the same a bit with Paul and Piranha he has a daughter who cares about very deeply but there seems to be a separation between them and you know maybe it's a bit archaic but I thought that the notion of a family unit was lovingly defined in Jaws it was an example of a family that seems to actually work in a really nice way Peter Benchley's novel posited an extramarital affair between Hooper and Brody's wife, which the bulk of the readings that we did on this film made reference to that distinction because people love to do that, right? It's like, well, I read the book and they changed this. Why? The book was so good. Why did they change it for the movie? And like, that's a whole other podcast we could talk about. I think that books and movies are apples and oranges and changes have to be made. And as long as they're made well to fit the convention, I'm okay with it. And I'm especially okay with it in this instance because... The affair, in addition to eroding the happy nuclear family that we see and actually value from Brody's point of view, it would also posit a competition between the men as if, you know, this worldly educated man is somehow superior to this man who is really fundamentally good and brave and when push comes to shove is the hero. So I actually really liked that change. No, I I appreciated that change, too. I thought it was really nice, and it kept the film going. I feel like the actors were talented enough, and the script was good enough, as was the direction, that you got all these really nice emotional bonds which help propel the story forward just the same as in Piranha there was just enough emotional stuff in there to make you care but not drag the movie down and one of the articles I was reading about Jaws posits that what Spielberg did was he didn't play in so much into the horror tropes but really played into the war film tropes and that is very much that the women are kind of left to the side and it is very much about a group of men going out and experiencing a trauma together and bonding and getting through it and even if only some of them return and this is again the themes in in Jaws are themes that Spielberg has gone on to explore again and again and again and there's nothing wrong with that but there is a kind of nice purity about these three men at sea and these actors who have a really nice chemistry bonding and laughing with each other and it makes you your emotional investment goes through the roof I used to hate the water (laughs) I can't imagine why So that concludes our lighthearted talk. This episode, I think, is comparatively... Do you you want to talk about rape at all? Not even a little bit, no. (laughs) This is our summer curriculum. We're keeping it light. We're keeping it nice and breezy after our witchcraft episode. I think after watching Antichrist, we needed a bit of a day at the beach for our brains. So we hope you enjoyed it. And we're going to be back again next month with another summer-themed episode. So stay tuned for that. And you can follow us through all of our usual channels. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We are, of course, on iTunes. So please make sure you're subscribed if you subscribe to iTunes and write us a review because that really actually does help us. And it makes us seem more important in the eyes of the grave of Steve Jobs. 
And of course, you can find us on our website, which is facultyofhorror.com. Your comments are amazing. And thank you so much for everyone who takes the time to write to us after listening to an episode. It's really great. And we are so glad that you guys take the time to listen, think about it, and reach out to us. And with that, office hours are closed. (laughs) 